Let's pray. Lord God, we give to you our hearts and our minds, our souls, our bodies, as we worship you. Would you, by your grace, speak to us by your Holy Spirit to help us to understand what you'd have us take home and take into our lives, out into the world. Thank you for your word given to us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. All these things that cause us to gather here as a family. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right. So a little over a year ago, we got here, right? And, and my wife, my son, and I drove all the way over from California. And what did we use to move? We used boxes, right? Boxes are great. It, it, moving is a great opportunity because you get these boxes, right? And you put the stuff into the boxes that you want, right? And, and, and other stuff you sell or you throw out, you, you don't want it, you don't enjoy it anymore, you just get rid of it. It helps you to, to organize your life, right? We label those boxes. We put the stuff in there, we label those boxes, we keep things clean, we keep things manageable with boxes. We put things into boxes sometimes to confine them, don't we? To set them apart to set them aside, to control them. There's two things in this life that do not belong in a box. People and God. Two things that do not belong in a box. People or God. Today we're going to be unwrapping those two boxes as we look at this passage of scripture that just should not exist in our efforts to fulfill that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 call that God's put upon our lives. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start at verse 16. Please remember if you cannot stand up don't worry about it. This is not an exercise in superior holiness but let's stand up for the reading of God's word because God's word is spectacular. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of uh, a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. So in verses 16 through 21, we find Paul having to deal with messy, sinful people. People that one might rather put in a box and, and throw into the attic or, or even out with the garbage and forget about them. Verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. These people were entrenched in idolatry. This is what they, they lived for. The words for full of idols. It's an unusual phrase in the Greek and has been interpreted in various ways by different translators and commentary writers. Uh, the city was given over to idols. There were idols everywhere. It was a city submerged in idols or overgrown with idols. You couldn't get away from them. There was nowhere you could go or look without the idolatry hitting you in the face. It's like going to Las Vegas and seeing the one-armed bandits everywhere. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to the air. You can't go anywhere without these things just being right there. You get the picture. The, the, the dude comes in. He's got tats all over his body. And there's skulls and their foul language draped all over him. Permanent. He has a little teardrop tattooed next to his eye to imply, at least to imply, that he's murdered somebody. He makes his sin so obvious. He doesn't want to be saved. He doesn't want to hear about Jesus. Look at him. The sin's everywhere about him. Let's just put him in a box. And then we can take that box put it aside and not worry about it anymore, right? 
or perhaps you're on the other side of things, and, and it's really the, uh, what, what scares you to death is the little old lady in a cardigan. She's too old and set in her ways, right? She can't change. Let's just put her in a box and put her aside. Paul could have put them in a box. These people wore their sin on their sleeve for all to see. They were proud of it. Perhaps they even held parades, waved their flags. They belong in a box. Put them in there and set it aside. After all, it's a box of their own making, right? They've made themselves unreachable by their choice of such audacious sinfulness, right? Box them up. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Not only were they idolaters, but they were mean idolaters. Here we have an interesting phrase in the Greek, that, that word for babbler. It comes from a word that was used agriculturally to describe scavenging birds that would fly down and they'd, they'd just kind of pick at seeds here and there. And, and so metaphorically, they'd use it about philosophers who would pick and choose from different people's religions and philosophies, and, and then they'd try and expound upon them as if they were their own. And, and so essentially, they, they were saying, who is this plagiarist? who's just picking these different things from different religions and philosophies and trying to make them his own. Who, who is this third-rate journalist? These people were abusive and mean. Just like those Thessalonican Jews who went out of their way to push Paul out of Berea. Do you remember that from our passage last week? Verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter there. It says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Paul didn't plan on being here at Athens. And then on top of that, these people are harassing him. They're giving him trouble. They're, they're just mouthing off. Why bother with them? Why not put them in a box and send them off with a, a fond wave goodbye? After all, these, these people in Athens don't actually want to learn anything, do they? They just sit around all day philosophizing. Verses 19 through 21. It says, And they took him and brought him out brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They don't want truth. They want to feel smart, the little narcissists. They are only into what makes them feel good about themselves. Box them up. It's where they belong. Their stereotype is all I really need to know about them. 
I've seen that sin before. I know those kind of people. They don't come to know the Lord. Box them up. Paul could have put them in a box because these aren't the kind of people who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He could have just waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy to join him and and go somewhere else, maybe just gone to the synagogue once or twice to talk to a few of the Jews. But, But Paul had a personal understanding of the depth of sin, didn't he? He knew very well everyone's need for the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What if Ananias hadn't stepped in and prayed for him and called him brother back in chapter 9? What if Barnabas had pigeonholed him just like the rest of the disciples in Jerusalem? What if God hadn't opened the eyes of that murderer, that persecutor of the church, who was proud of what he was doing. There is no one so embedded in their sin that God cannot reach them. And in their sin, they need him, don't they? Paul had love for God, didn't he? He had a zealous fire in his spirit that that was provoked when he saw this rich disdain for God in Athens. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He was angry. That word for provoked, he was angry with what he saw, just as God is angry with sin and idolatry, isn't he? God is not okay with sin. Isaiah 42, verse 8 I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 41. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Speaking of their idols. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. But instead of this zealous love for God driving him away from these people and boxing them up and just kind of pushing them aside in their sinfulness, his zealous love for God drove him toward them. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Come one, come all. I'll talk to anybody who will listen. Why not put them in a box and and send them off with that fond wave goodbye? 
because Paul knew full well what he would be condemning them to. Eternal hell. Hell is a real place. Like it or not, it's there. And it will be full of those who are separated from God forever, who have not come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul understood that the love of God rescued him from that very fate while he was still shaking his fist at God and persecuting the church, persecuting Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. These are the words of Paul that he wrote later. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And inasmuch as every human being has been created in the image of God and knit together in their mother's wombs by his very hand, they have value. Created in the image of God, by the hand of God, they have value, even in their sinful condition, in the eyes of God. Think about it. If you didn't have value in the eyes of God, you wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today. Paul understood that they need Jesus Christ because of where they are spiritually. If we look at the guy with all the tats on him and think, if he burns in hell, he probably deserves it. That's really what he's chosen. Then guess what? So do you and I, huh? Apart from the grace of God. It's opened our eyes to the truth and caused us to choose him. People don't belong in a box when it comes to our call to share the gospel message, that good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation. Does people's sin cause me to, to push them aside and box them up? It sure would be easier that way, wouldn't it? It'd be more comfortable. Or does it drive me to be salt and light? Does their sinfulness provoke that in me? Does it provoke a love for God that then becomes a love for them right where they are? Do I take their sin personally? Am I so offended by them that, that I feel I have the right to keep the gospel to myself because they have just been mean? Hey, if you're going to be like that, I'm walking away. Do we understand that their sin is an indicator of, of their condition, their fallen condition, before a holy God. It's, a, it's an indicator of how much they need salvation the same way we do. And we are the ones who carry the message of the gospel. We are the ones who are told to bear witness to the person and works of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does eventually depart, doesn't he? 
He doesn't fight them forever over this. He does leave them, but not until he has done all he can to open their God box. See, people don't belong in a box, and God doesn't fit in a box. Verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. Paul connects with them. He found the hole in their philosophy and made it into an opportunity to share Christ. And we should ask ourselves, are we looking for the Christ-shaped hole in people's lives? Are we actively looking for that Christ-shaped hole so that we can show them how he fits into their circumstances? Paul took the time to observe and to listen so that he could be effective when it came to bearing witness of Jesus Christ. What's going on in the lives of those around us? Our family, our friends, our co-workers, our school friends? What's going on in their lives into which we can insert Christ? Can we see Christ in our own lives enough to do that? Are we listening for the chance to open their God box? I guarantee you, everybody has God in a box. Are we listening for the chance to hear what they think about God and then help them to understand what God has actually said about himself? Because it is God who defines himself, not us. Paul points out to them their flawed perspective of God by telling them that God is bigger than their idols could ever express, that there is a God they don't know. Just as they admitted themselves, we don't know everything. We don't know. There might be an unknown God out there. And he says, that's exactly what I'm going to proclaim to you, the God that you don't know. And he doesn't belong in your box. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He doesn't live in our box because he's the one who made the box in the first place. He made everything, the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He does not need us no man can make a place for him to live or contain him isaiah 66 1 through 2 thus says the lord heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be declares the lord but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives us 
everything, everything we are, our very lives are held together right now by him. Everything belongs to him. He doesn't need us, and therefore he cannot be manipulated by us. Psalm 50. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? We should not begin to think that we can control him by our works or our sacrifices. And yet, how often do we pray to our God in a box? As if he should do something for us because we've accepted Christ, or he should do something for us because I pray regularly, or I go to church every Sunday, so God, you need to do this. You're my little jack-in-the-box, God, and I turned the handle. Why didn't you pop up? I played the tune. Come on. God isn't a God in a box. Let's not think that we can manipulate him by any amount of good works or things we've done right. Verses 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. How could the impersonal form the personal? How could that which has no mind create that which does? How could wood or silver or stone or gold create such a creature as man? Endowed with this innate art and imagination, this innate creativity. Because we've been created in the image of God. The finite cannot create the infinite. God cannot be shaped or molded or defined by man any more than the finite can create the infinite. Any more than the creature gets to define its creator. It doesn't make sense, does it, to try and do that? And yet we do it every day. You've got to love the interaction between God and Job in, in Job chapters 38 and following. I'll just read a few verses here. It says, who is this? This is God talking to Job. That darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God goes on and on 
and on. And he could have gone on forever. But by the end, when God is finished, Job says, I know you can do all things. And then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. Infinite, empower the almighty, omnipotent God. Immense power under perfect control. Before him, we need to be afraid. For there is nothing hidden. There is nothing hidden from his eyes. I love this description from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as he, he just tries to just give the, the kids who are reading or the people who are reading an, an, an imagination of, of Jesus. The children are gathered in the book, are, uh, they're gathered in the house of the beavers, and, and they're discussing Aslan, who is the Christ character in the book, and it starts out with, with this character, Lucy, and she says, is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God isn't safe. Let's not begin to think there's anything safe about God. He's not containable. We don't get to choose what he's like. He's God. But he is good. Verses 26 and following. And he made man, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are indeed his offspring. 
being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine is as gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us all assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of him through Jesus Christ, a knowledge of the truth. He wants us to repent, to forsake our sin, to see it for what it is, and turn to him through Jesus Christ. He wants us to acknowledge our sinful condition, that that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, his holy perfection. The absolute absence of sin is our God. He wants us to realize that we deserve, what we deserve for our sin is death, an eternity of being separated from him in hell because God will not live with sin. He wants us to know and understand that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, paid the price for our sin at the cross in our place. He died for us so that we don't have to die. We don't have to be separated from God forever. That's the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our works, because our works will only fall short of God's holy perfection. But he has given us his grace through Jesus Christ that we might be saved through Jesus Christ and in him alone. It's this Jesus Christ whom God raised from the dead, isn't it? The resurrection standing as evidence of the truth of the gospel. As as Jesus appeared following his death on the cross to over 500 people at once. And he appeared time and again to the different disciples. Acts chapter 1. We started the book this way, right? Acts chapter 1 verse 3 it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen. Amen. God has done this for us because there is coming a day of judgment. Because God will not be patient with our unrighteousness forever. He will not live and be patient with sin forever. He will not be put into a box of our making. Isaiah 65. I think this passage was written in foresight of the very passage we're going through right now. In the book of Acts, Isaiah 65, he says, I was ready, this is God speaking, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. 
I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap the payment for their former deeds, all of their idolatry, all of their denial of God and who he is in his fullness. As Christians who understand the impact of all of these things. The infinite, eternal immensity of God and his desire that we would repent in view of his coming judgment of sin and the salvation that he's provided for us through his own son. Let's be those who are driven to share Christ at every opportunity with anyone who will listen, whether they look like it or not, right where they are in their sin, not putting them in boxes in order to excuse ourselves from fulfilling that Acts 1-8 call that God has put upon our lives. God didn't say, go into the world and bear witness to the person and works of Jesus Christ to those who already know me. Because it'll be easier that way. He said, go, bear witness to the world, to the end of the earth. We don't want to put people in boxes because of their sin, but seeing their sin instead as a sign of their need for Jesus Christ. That we once were where they are. We needed to hear Jesus Christ. So do they. And then let's do all we can to unpack their God boxes. Showing them the true God who loves them and wants them to know who he is. Let's pray. Father God, you have placed a very, very difficult call upon our lives. And we acknowledge that right here before you, that we fall short. Lord, how easy it is to read about this call as we do our devotionals or we, we study your word and we read that it, we need to bear witness to the ends of the earth. You've told us this and that's good. And then we go back to work and go back about our lives and come back on Sunday. And Lord, we pray that your word would become more significant to us than ever before. Lord, that as we study and we understand and we come into a, a deeper comprehension of what you have said to us, and how it applies to our lives, Lord, that you would give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to step out, empower us, help us not to have a spirit of timidity, but one of power, knowing that we don't rest on the things of this world, but we rest upon an almighty God who cannot be put in a box. You are the God of creation and the God of salvation. So we come before you, Lord, and we pray that you help us as we go from this place to be bearers of the truth of Jesus Christ, to wear you on our sleeves just as much as the world wears their sin on their sleeves. Give us strength that we don't have. 
Help us, Lord, not to make that an excuse, but to allow that weakness to drive us to you and our zealous love for you to drive us to them. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.